For Arizona Public Media, I'm Sophia Palisakar, filling in for Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. We were out last weekend with the project Dimelo, Tell Me, at the Tucson Festival of Books. We asked you to tell us what inspires you. We heard about monsoon storms, astronomy, the loop, the heat, the rich history of the region, and more. On today's show, the legacy of a family-owned business in Tucson is older than the state of Arizona itself. I visit Historic Garcia Cleaners, founded in 1909, to learn about the Great Polyester Scare and other challenging moments in dry cleaning history. Then, reporter Andrew Brown will catch up with pinhole camera photographer Wayne Martin Belger and his 12-year-old daughter, Tara, who have just returned from photographing Syrian refugees in Lesbos, Greece. Later, interest in installing rainwater harvesting systems is low on the west and south sides of town. Could Promotoras, trained Spanish-speaking community members, stoke that interest? And last, reporter Mariana Dale and I explore political polarization. We take to the streets to ask people about what moves them to vote, or not. These stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. First up, I visit Garcia Cleaners on 22nd Street to talk about what it takes to be a successful family-owned business in Tucson. Here's Eddie Escalante. When people would ask him as a kid, so what do you do, he would say, You know, I'm a little kid. He's like, you know, asking me, and I go, I'm the one who runs the cleaners, I told him. <laughs> and so, because that was my grandfather always all, you're the boss. You'd so when we started out when we were like 10, just, me and my brother or my cousin, we'd be out in the uh, parking lot picking up cigarette butts. So that was our first job. We'd get $4 a week. When you're like 10 years old, $4 a week is wow. Well, back then, also, we're talking like the 80s. So $4 in the 80s was a lot of money. So we were really excited about that. Eddie almost didn't run the cleaners. He actually went to college and dreamed of working at a radio station. However, it's like, like the godfather, the mafia, when they say, just when I think I'm out, they bring me back in. Eddie Escalante and his mom, Barbara Carino, run Garcia Cleaners, a family-owned business that is 107 years old. They sit in big, comfortable chairs, catty-cornered to each other in their office. They are a good team. Do you guys work well together? Yes. Sometimes. <laughs> Mostly. Most of the time we do. There's sometimes a little disagreement, but then we kind of meet in the middle. Okay, they are mostly a good team. Eddie is the fourth generation to take over. Making it that long is hard. Only about 3% of family-owned businesses make it into the fourth generation and beyond. So, what's their story? Barbara's grandfather, Margarito Garcia, opened the business after immigrating to the U.S. from Mexico. It started out as a tailor shop, which he called Garden City Tailors, because he thought it was a pretty name. And then when my grandfather and uncle, my granduncle came back from World War II, they decided to call it, uh, well, no, then he changed it to Garcia's. Garcia and Sons. And Sons. And then when my grandfather died in 1952, they just cut the, Gar- the sons and just made it Garcia. And then when Herbert Renew came, my uncle didn't want to continue in the business. My dad did. So he went and took his share. My dad then decided to open another one. Looked all over town. 
driving and and he found this place right here on 22nd Street. A photo of Margarito and his wife Guadalupe graces the front lobby of Garcia Cleaners. His family has continued his legacy because they take pride in their work and because they enjoy the sagas of their customers. The funniest thing is we have a cust- we have customers that are divorced and they still come here separately. <laughs> That's the funniest thing. And we know what's going on with them before they even know what's going on. No, before they think we know. Yeah. (laughs) I can make a whole television show, reality show, about the cleaners. And we could totally, I mean, we have customers that are so so many different characters. I mean, we have have the complainers, which we know, oh, he's coming in, get ready. Your turn. (laughs) Or or we we have the grateful customers that are just... So happy that we're here. We have the customers that are just proud to be customers of ours for the her- the heritage that we have, the history that we have. They have even had the honor of laundering Wilbur the Wildcat, the UA mascot. And they're a one-stop shop for rodeo wranglers who want their jeans starched enough to bounce dust off. And they always remember your first name. Eddie says working there is like working at a barber shop. And if you come on a Saturday, it's like a big, like, Family thing. Family thing. I mean, we're all hanging Friends out. Friends and everything come to visit us here because we're never home. <laughs> but not all of these years have been so peaceful. First, there was the Great Depression of the 1930s. Then later on... Uh, my grandfather always used to tell me about the, uh, in the 70s, the polyester scare, when they came out with polyester, because before that, there wasn't very much polyester. It was all, you know, wools, cottons. And, and silk, so you know that, that those had to be well. Cottons you don't have to really dry clean, but those other materials did have to be dry clean. And then they came out with polyester, which is looks just as as fancy as a silk, but it's not. You can wash it. While the world didn't end up switching to all polyester jumpsuits, Garcia Cleaners has been faced with uncertainty of livelihood again and again. The 2008 recession almost put them out of business as people cut luxury services like haircuts and dry cleaners. The most recent challenge comes from the Regional Transit Authority. They're planning a road widening project for 22nd Street, which would displace Garcia cleaners from their perch right off I-10. And then we're pretty much on a, you know, on the way home from people that work at the university, on the way home of the people that work at Raytheon. And I mean, if I would have ever had the chance to have thank my grandfather for picking a location, I could have told him, hey, this was a really good location. For now, the project has been put off until at least 2017. Project manager Janice Quaron says the third phase, the phase which would affect Garcia cleaners, is delayed for at least three to five years. And when it does occur, the city would pay relocation expenses. On top of all this, when it comes to the general business climate in Tucson, Leah Marquez-Peterson of the Hispanic Chamber of Commerce says that Latino-owned businesses, actually Latina-owned, to be more specific, are the fastest-growing sector, and yet face challenges scaling up. When you look at data, you see that Latino-owned businesses have a lesser access to capital than kind of the general population. Our businesses tend to be smaller and more family-owned and operated. Good morning, Garcia Cleaners. So what does this mean for the future of Garcia Cleaners? Are they sport jackets, like you say, or are they jackets? Over the last 100 years or so, Garcia Cleaners has been in six different Tucson locations, and not always because they wanted to move. On Congress, it was first, right, Barb? Yes. And then uh, 
he ended up moving to a bigger location on Meyer Street. They started on Congress in 1909, then they were on South Meyer twice, Congress again, South Main, and now 22nd Street. They've been through it all before. So chances are when they have to move again, Garcia cleaners will live on. And maybe they've been able to make it so many years by just taking it one year at a time. The future is hopefully we were here for another 20 years. That's it, just for success, success. Music in this piece is provided by Tucson band Sixa. This week on the occasional series Under the Sun, Andrew Brown talks to pinhole photographer Wayne Martin Belger and his 12-year-old daughter Tara. They just returned from a trip to Lesbos, Greece, where Wayne took portraits of Syrian refugees. My name is Wayne Martin Belger. I'm an artist here based in Tucson, an artist photographer. I'm not really sure what I am, but uh, <laughs> I like people. I guess that's what I uh, am, a professional people liker. I've never wanted to be a voyeur, you know, where I just kind of like stand back with some device made in Japan or, or Germany and just um, take snapshots of life. I actually make the cameras to be in relationship with a subject I want to learn about. This is the uh, latest camera. It's called us and them right now. It's uh, created to study the fictitious us and them that governments create to um, separate people, create division, and to dehumanize, basically. I build the cameras from scratch. Um, it's made out of aluminum, titanium, copper, steel, glass. All the glass that's in the back chamber I found in Palestine. This armband is from a Jewish ghetto in World War II, so there's a Star of David on it. Another couple artifacts, or probably some that might be a little uneasy for some people. Um, there's a human tooth in this top chamber in the camera. And then there's two fingernails on each side in, two, in chambers on the sides of the camera. These were part of a Vietnam vet's kill-proof box. Um, his commander made him take a body part from everybody he killed. Last year, uh, my girlfriend was invited to do a, a photo project in Lesbos, Greece. Her name's Jade Beale. She does quite a bit of activism with her photography. I went on the trip too, and it just ended up being a beautiful, amazing trip. And I, I've always liked going different places to see what is really going on for myself rather than listen to any kind of media. Sorry, but, you know, any kind of media. And what I experienced there was so, so insanely different from what I was seeing on media here, and which even got me more riled up. And so the camera got more and more intense with the artifacts in it. And the whole, you know, um, idea of just really diving into this fictitious us and them um, became even bigger. And then so I went back in February um, to work on the same photo series. Uh, but this time my daughter was incredibly touched by uh, what I did the first trip. So she started a fundraiser to fund herself and actually go work in the refugee camps herself. I'm Tara Maria Belger. I'm a 12-year-old girl. I'm really into social activism. Hearing the stories, I wanted to see for myself. There wasn't a question, really. I wanted to help. 
Haftar is the youngest person to ever work in the refugee camps. Um, you have generally you have to be over eighteen, but they made a set, special exception for Tara. Going there, it was it was more than I expected. For the first week, I didn't even break out the camera. Yeah, it was strictly uh, working with the refugees, doing whatever was needed, including boat landings and and different things to really kind of feel the situation. It seems like a lot of the refugees are portrayed as you know these poor people. They're either they're the poor people or they're terrorists. A lot of the people I um, photographed and I met were doctors, dentists. Um, this one gentleman became good friends with um, Bashir. He um, has a, a doctorate in engineering and is from Damascus. When I think about the trip, the first thing I think about is um, Bashar and his family. He talked about being in the street with his two super young children, infant children, and his wife watching planes or drones fly over, wondering if today was the day they die. There's no way, there's no way anybody here in this country would stay in a situation that Bashar was in or anybody else I interviewed. So he ended up um, leaving, trying to set up um, a new home in Germany, tried to get his wife out and couldn't get them out. He hired smugglers to take his wife from Turkey to Lesbos. Um, they were caught three times in a row um, by the Turkish Navy and turned back. Smugglers are charging him $1,300 each time for each child, his wife and his sister. And so this was the uh, video I took of Bashar when the rescue boat finally arrived. And you know, for over a year, it didn't work for his wife and two kids and his sister. And. This time it does, and I felt just so gifted to be there. It was heartwarming, heartbreaking at the same time. I mean, it was beautiful to watch this family um, reunite, but should they be reuniting after a year? Like, why should they be so separated? You know, the, that's the heartbreaking part. Like, they have to go through this. You have no idea what's happening. You know, if you're just being a voyeur with taking snapshots. You know, I want firsthand, and then I'll break out the camera. Then I got this relationship. You get people that have just survived something epic like that, and I'm there to share with them. You get this real core base level of communication. And so it's, it's really, really beautiful. And I want to take this, and the, my, what I want to do is I want to communicate with it. Because all these photos are going to be a show in New York at the uh, Center for Photographic Arts. I think the contrast could really help people see a bit of reality into a situation. I hope they can. I'm glad that he, that I don't have a dad who just sits in a cubicle all day and types. There's nothing wrong with that, but it's a... Uh, yeah, but... Yeah, but we like to see the world. Welcome. Wayne's photo series, Us and Them, will be opening at the Center for Photographic Arts in New York in September. 
hear his daughter Tara read poetry about her experiences in Lesbos at the next Words on the Avenue. To see his camera, photographs of his trip, and the video of Bashir being reunited with his family, go to azpm.org. And now we hear about how a legacy of community-driven Latinas and the occasional Latino could help bring rainwater harvesting to all corners of Tucson. This, though it may not sound like it, is the sound of flowing water. Or rather, it's what comes right before here in the desert. On this Friday morning, 20 women, all wearing hats and gym shoes, shovel dirt in the front yard of a West Side residence. They are preparing to install a passive rainwater harvesting system. (laughs) Capturing rainwater in the desert makes sense. It can help shade trees to grow, which cool down houses and reduce noise pollution from traffic. And rainwater often evaporates or runs into sewers when it could be used instead to irrigate plants, especially when the average family in Tucson uses 27% of their water outdoors. That's why Tucson Water created a rebate program in 2012 to incentivize the installation of rainwater harvesting systems. Here's Fernando Molina of Tucson Water. Water conservation historically in Tucson has been, what's the impact at the meter? Can we reduce water use at the meter, thereby reducing our overall water use and helping our customers? In this expanded view of water conservation, we're looking at other water resources that we can use to benefit the community, and rainwater is one of those things. However, the program has seen very little interest from the south and west sides of town. So Tucson Water reached out for help from longtime nonprofit SERI, the Sonoran Environmental Research Institute, and specifically their Promotora program. And we have been working with the community for over 20 years now. So we're very well known. And the way they get to know us is mostly by word of mouth. This is Flor Morales. Today, she is the woman in charge. She's an energetic blur, getting people water, shoveling dirt, taking iPhone photos, translating. She's also volunteered her front yard as the demo yard. Flora is the program manager of SERI, and she's here training these 20 women to be promotoras. Promotoras are Latina community health educators who work explaining anything from lead detectors to reproductive health. And now they've been activated to advocate for rainwater harvesting. The promotoras are these amazing people in the community that take all the information they know and they have been learning and take it out to spread the word out in the community. Just like for this specific training that we're currently having, they're gonna, it's on climate change. So all the things that they're learning within this two-week training, they're gonna take all of that information and they're gonna go visit their community. The promotoras work primarily with a Spanish-speaking community. Once they finish this two-week training, they'll do five home visits each in the southern metropolitan areas of Tucson to explain what they've learned. Promotoras reach out through personal networks to inform and educate people, which is exactly how Flor got involved in the first place. Flor's mom, who also happens to be out here digging in the sun, has been doing promotora work for the last 12 years, Flor's mom is also named Flor. The two of them together, she says, make a garden. 
which is very appropriate for their work today, but neither Floor is particularly delicate. In 2004, 14-year-old daughter Floor told her family she wanted something different. They were living in Hermosillo, Mexico, but she had been born in the United States, and her father was a permanent resident. As a teenager, she decided that she wanted to move back to Tucson to go to high school. The whole family decided to move with her to support her. Her mom left her CPA job, and for her, the transition was a bit abrupt. But for Flor, there was a lot to get excited about. It's funny because I remember that we used to drive by Tucson High, and I, was, I, didn't, I had no clue that it was a high school, but I really like it. So I was like, oh, I wish that's a high school, and that's the one that I have to go to. And yeah, it was the one that I had to go to. And then I just went across the street to U of A to, to do my business major. While Flor excelled, her mom started volunteering in the community with Sari, and she got Flor hooked on community work. Flor's mom is very proud of her daughter. And for Flor, it was amazing to find that in her community work, people were so open and kind. For me, that was something that I, at first, I couldn't believe because we were, when I started as a volunteer, we used to go around the streets and like distributing the war. And they were always very kind to let us into their homes and let us do these evaluations. Although many of the times they did it, it was the first time that they were meeting us. They both believe that knocking on doors as a form of outreach has real potential and that the lack of interest in the rainwater harvesting rebate has to do with a lack of trust and outreach. People don't see the commercials that run on television or they don't feel comfortable dialing an office number to get more info or they are worried about being charged extra. And quite simply, for many, it is still too expensive of a system to install, even with a 50% rebate of up to $2,000. As part of this pilot program, Tucson Water hopes to install a rainwater harvesting system at the Iglesia Bautista on South 12th, as a demo for people to see and touch. And Sari will be loaning money for 10 families to pursue the rebate without having to put money up front. They hope that will make all the difference. Here to consult and help out with finishing touches in Flora's front yard is Jeff Rohde of Dryland Design. I think a lot of what's exciting is getting people excited about it. Uh, it kind of gets, um, I don't know, people get like a bug as soon as they start collecting some water. Every drop that they see leaving their roof or leaving their property, they start thinking like, that could be mine, like, that could be watering my plants. Hopefully the promotoras will pass on that water harvesting bug. For their part, they pride themselves on delivering knowledge with a smile. Aida Bustamante, a promotora well into her 60s, says what she's learned doesn't have an age limit to it. Next, reporter Mariana Dale and I took to the streets of Tucson to ask you to tell us, dímelo, what inspires you to vote? Or, what doesn't? We wanted to see if the political polarization visible nationally can be seen on the ground in and around Tucson. We got a small sample, gathered at car shows and at the Tanque Verde swap meet. Here's what we heard. We heard some excitement. 
it was, was quite an honor. You had to wait in line and yeah. show an ID, and, and everybody turned out to vote. And, and uh, it was, I mean, it was a, something you did, you took pride in. Yeah, I remember I had to wait because, like, my birthday's in December, and I turned 18 in December, and the election was, like, the November before. So I think I had to wait a whole nother election cycle or something along those lines. I just remember I had to wait. Um, I can't say that. I mean, I remember I was excited that I finally got to, and that's probably when I first started getting a little more in tune. Well, it's part of my job being an American citizen. I was originally born and raised in Europe, and I'm a Vietnam veteran, so I think it's my duty to vote. I show up because I really think that everybody needs to do that. They need to participate. You know, if it's the only voice we've got. We heard about some hot-button issues. Most important for me is how are my grandkids going to live? How are their, it'll affect their lives today? You know, I, I don't want them uh, to live the way I did. Just the economy in general. I think the state of our economy is not really good. Other things will work out if we got a strong economy. Even though I'm Mexican, I still feel that way. We're just getting invaded on the south border over here, and I don't like it at all because if it was probably the good Mexicans, I probably wouldn't mind it, but there's a lot more to it than that, you know. So, and No, I don't. Uh, I'm afraid to talk to other people about it, but uh, I know my feeling real well, you know, and um, I just don't want to insult anybody, so I kind of keep it to myself. We heard from some in various stages of apathy. I was in the Army, they made me go. <laughs> Actually, I do not vote because I feel that every time I, the times that I hear everybody else voting, their opinions really never seem to count. I was not brought up to think that that was important and I didn't view that as uh, a part of my responsibility until I was adult and got into the foster care um, system working with that? Well, honestly, it's not going to make a difference in Arizona because it's a Republican state. Uh, so I'm, I'm a Democrat, you know. So I'm not sure if I'm going to vote because it's pointless, you know. And some voiced overall concern about politics. Oh, I have never missed a vote. However, you know, all I can say is right now there is nothing or anyone that I would trust in the room with the red button. Well, if we don't vote, our whole government could be, well, I don't want to say it, but <laughs> have a bunch of misfits. It's almost to that point now. If things don't work out the way people think they should, it's only one, one reason they didn't vote. <laughs> Thank you for all of those who shared with us. You heard from George, Tiffany, Lisa, Linda, Dave, Annette, Arnie, Richard, Susan, John, Anna, Alex, Abel, and others. Music in this piece is provided by Tucson band Sixa. Reporter Mariana Dale and I co-produced this story. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can also find our podcast on iTunes. To learn more about Dimelo, Stories of the Southwest, you can visit dimelostories.org. This show originates from the AZPM radio studios. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood, with assistance from Isaac Rodriguez. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm guest producer and host, Sophia Palisakar. Mark McLemore will be back next week.